Welcome to the Christ Walk Podcast. At Christ Walk Church, we exist to inspire people to follow Jesus every day. Enjoy the message. What's up, 11 o'clock? How's everybody doing? So good to see you guys today. That's right. Fantasy football, calling all men. If you want to be beaten mercilessly by your pastor all season long, join my group, all right? And I'm going to take no prisoners, okay? So uh, what about those gators? (laughs) This is what I know. Kentucky Wildcats have a streak against the gators, 1-0, baby. Forget the past 31 years. 1-0. All right? Um, Hey, today is day 15 of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. Um, It has been an incredible uh, season for me personally. I hope that those of you that are participating have experienced the same. And um, if you're just now finding out and you're like, what? We're in the middle of 21 days of prayer and fasting. No worries. You can finish out this week with us. You can find out all the information that you need at thechristwalk.com slash pray. There's our reading plan. There's fasting tips, prayer tips, everything there for you. And I encourage you to, even if you haven't been participating up to this point, just jump in today and finish out this last week strong with us. And then because we've been fasting Um, Then next Sunday, uh, we'll wrap up our 21 days of prayer and fasting. And so we're going to break our fast together. There's going to be a fun little breakfast bar out front at both the 915 and the 11 o'clock services. And so come ready to um, experience that. It's going to be a lot of fun together. And um, I'm just excited about this season of our church. And I'm looking forward as we turn our attention into the fall and you asked for it and all the things that are going to come as a part of that. So uh, it's a great time to be a part of Christ Walk Church. And if you know somebody that's not a part of Christ Walk Church, invite them to come and be with you so that they can experience what God is doing here in and through the life of our church as well. So if you got your Bibles or a smart device, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. That's in the Old Testament. Um, In case you're unfamiliar, the Bible is divided up into these two large sections. You've got the Old Testament at the front and the New Testament at the back. And in the Old Testament, which is the section up front, there is a couple books called 1 and 2 Samuel. It was originally one big book about a guy named Samuel. And then there's some other characters in there as well, Saul and David and some others. But um, it was initially this one large book, and when they put it into the Bible, they divided it into two um, kind of bite-sized chunks. And so we're going to be in the second part of that, the second Samuel, and we're going to land in chapter 17 in just a moment, starting with verse 16. So I, I got to know, is there any, any comic book fans in the house? Anybody? There's a few. In the first service, nobody raised their hand. And one person finally felt sorry for me and all the way in the back raised their hand just to make me feel better about myself. And I was looking around and there were definitely some closet nerds in the room. So I know that they were just lying <laughs> to their pastor. So for those of you that raised your hand, thank you for self-identifying and for, for coming clean in front of God and everybody this morning. So um, in April of uh, 1964, a brand new character known as Daredevil made his way into the scene of the Marvel Comics universe. 
And in, in case you're unfamiliar with Daredevil, his, his origins stem from a childhood accident that gave him special abilities. See, while, while growing up in the historically gritty and crime-ridden working-class Irish-American neighborhood of New York City known as Hell's Kitchen, a young boy by the name of Matt Murdock was blinded by a radioactive substance that fell from an out-of-control truck as he pushed a man out of the path of the oncoming vehicle. And while he could no longer see, Matt Murdock's exposure to this radioactive material heightened his remaining senses above what is normal for human beings and gave him what the comics refer to as a radar sense. It was then that as he grew up, Murdock donned a, a red suit and began to utilize his newfound abilities to avenge his father's death and thwart the evil that was taking place in Hell's Kitchen at the hands of such villains as Bullseye and the Kingpin, while he took on the persona of the legend that those in the community came to know as the Daredevil. Now, many of us have had an experience similar to uh, Matt Murdock in our lives. And, and no, I don't know anyone that's gotten radioactive sludge on their eyes and has lost their sight. That's not what I'm talking about. But I do know plenty of people that have encountered something in life that left them with a seeming disadvantage. But just like Matt Murdock, they refuse to let that stop them. Like consider this, billionaire Bill Gates, his first business, it failed. Composer Ludwig von Beethoven, he was deaf. Genius physicist Albert Einstein didn't speak until he was four years old. Pro surfer Bethany Hamilton, she got her arm bitten off by a shark. Inventor and founding father of America, Ben Franklin, dropped out of school at the age of 10. Billionaire business magnate Richard Branson has dyslexia. Author Stephen King's first novel was rejected by over 30 publishers. Inventor Thomas Edison admittedly failed at least a thousand times before he successfully invented the incandescent light bulb. Filmmaker Steven Spielberg was rejected from USC film school twice. Michael Jordan was cut from the varsity basketball team in his sophomore year of high school. And what do all of those people have in common with Matt Murdock and Daredevil and even some of us in this room today is that what first appears to be an adversity, they've managed to turn it into an advantage. See, these figures and others like them, they discovered the life principle that Kelly Clarkson sang about. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? <laughs> Who knew she was such a theologian? Evangelist Billy Graham put it this way. He said, comfort and prosperity have never enriched the world as much as adversity has. It's the same sentiment that caused the Apostle Paul to write the following words to encourage the people at the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 11, he wrote, but the Lord said to me, my grace is enough for you. When you are weak, my power is made perfect in you. So I'm very happy to brag about my weaknesses. Then Christ's power can live in me. For this reason, I'm happy when I have weaknesses, insults, hard times, sufferings, and all kinds of troubles for Christ. Because when I am weak, then I am truly strong. 
And this all boils down to a single principle that if you and I were able to grasp this principle and apply it to our lives, it could, it could totally change and revolutionize our perspective. And it's simply this. Sometimes a bad thing can be the best thing that could ever happen. Sometimes a bad thing could be the best thing that could ever happen. And today we're in part four of this series that we've been calling Worst Day Ever, where we've been taking a look at a day in the life of a man named David from the Old Testament in the hopes of discovering some truths from his experience that we can apply to our own lives whenever we are facing a bad day or a bad season. Now, David was the most heralded king in all of Israel. He wrote the majority of the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, and the Bible even says that David was a man after God's own heart. But despite all of those things, David still had his experience, his share of pain and turmoil and struggle in his life. All the way back in part one of this series, we talked about how uh, a bad news almost always accompanies a bad day, that it begins with bad news. But, but we learn that bad news is rarely as bad as we believe it to be. And that whenever we do encounter bad news, that we don't have to consider the facts, we don't have to succumb to our fears, but instead we can lean into our faith in those moments. In part two, we talked about three types of relationships and we likened them to milk matches, and magnets that represent how God uses our bad days or bad seasons to bring about different kinds of relationships that he wants us to have in our lives that will either help us walk through or move beyond a bad season. And last week, we talked about words, particularly the hurtful ones that others use toward us or about us that often make up a part of our bad days. We learn that it doesn't matter what others might say or think about us, that the only thing that matters is what our Heavenly Father says and thinks about us. And then today, as we close out this series, I want to talk for a few minutes about wilderness experiences, wilderness experiences. Chances are most all of us here today have had some sort of wilderness experience in life that we would look back on and we would say, yeah, that was, that was a bad time. And at the time, it may have seemed like the end of the road, but now that we are on the other side of it, we've come to realize that it was simply a bend in the road and that we are better on this side of it than we were when we first started. And it's in these kinds of moments in life, in the wilderness experiences, in the worst moments of life that I believe that God can bring about his best moments. And that's what this series is all about. And so before we jump into today's passage and we read together, I'd like to provide a recap of our story that we've covered up to this point so that we're all on the same page. David, when we come on the scene, he was king of Israel and had been so for 20 plus years. We're not exactly sure, but it was at least 20 years, maybe a little bit longer. And one day he gets word from a messenger that his son, by the name of Absalom, had made a play for his throne and was seeking to have his father, David, the king, killed. 
Absalom was a terrible, terrible person. And David gets this news that, that Absalom is trying to take over the throne and have him killed. And so he starts, uh, jumps into scramble mode and he starts uh, pulling together any supplies and, and people and resources that he has. And, and he gets, gets this, little, this little band of people together and, and, and what supplies they could scrounge up. And, and they manage to make it out of the palace and out of the city unscathed. And they get some distance away from the city to a place of, of safety, and, and that's where David stops, and, and he, he takes inventory of the supplies that they have, and he takes a head count of all those that are with him, and then they begin to develop a plan for where to go to from this point forward. And it's at that moment that David realizes that one of his best friends, a guy by the name of Mephibosheth, wasn't with him and in fact had stayed back in Jerusalem and was allegedly, had allegedly flipped his support from David and was now giving it to Absalom as the new king of Israel. So hurt and angry and frustrated and confused, David managed to take what supplies he had and the small group of people that they were with him, that were with him and they decided that they were gonna head on to the Jordan River. But to do so, they had to travel through a region in the tribe of Benjamin that was known as Bahurim. And so as they're on their way through Bahurim, they run across a man by the name of Shimei. And Shimei was a descendant. He was a relative of Saul. And Saul was the king before David became king of Israel. And Shimei had told himself the lie that David was the reason that Saul was no longer king. And, and Shimei had fallen into the, the false belief that David had killed Saul and his family in order to ascend to the throne. And Shimei is so upset about this that, that he's, he's cursing and, and he's hurling insults and even rocks and dirt at David and his men. But they managed to make it through Bahurim and all the way to the Jordan River. And it's there that they are getting ready to set up camp when meanwhile, a man by the name of Hushai, don't you just love the names in the Bible? I wish I had a friend named Hushai, you know, that'd be cool. A man by the name of Hushai, who was a servant of David, had stayed back in Jerusalem at David's command and was posing to be a servant of Absalom. He was serving as David's man on the inside and he was collecting intel and then sending messengers to report back to David. And it's here that, that Hushai discovered the plan of Absalom and what he was going to do next and that Absalom had gotten together an army and that they were getting ready to set out to find David and have him and everyone that was with him killed so that Absalom could once and for all take over the throne. And so Hushai, upon gaining this information, he calls some messengers to him and he's getting ready to send them out to where David is located. And that brings us to our passage for today. 2 Samuel 17, verse 16. We're gonna read one verse together. And my Bible reads this way. Quick, he told them. This is Hushai telling the messengers. Quick, he told them. Find David and urge him not to stay at the shallows of the Jordan River tonight. He must go across at once into the wilderness beyond. Otherwise, he will die and his entire army with him. See, ultimately, what Hushai was sending messengers to tell David was this. Look, dude, if you stay where you are, you're going to die. It was a simple message. If you stay where you are, you are going to die. So you've got to move on. 
And David, he couldn't come back the way that he had come because that was the direction that Absalom and his army were, were hot on the trail of David and his small group of friends. And so the only way for David and his men to survive was to cross the river and enter into the wilderness. That sounds pretty reassuring, right? Like, that's a good plan. Yeah, let's cross the river and go into the wilderness. Yeah, maybe we'll get eaten by a lion, you know? Like, that'll be okay. But see, David, he was no stranger to the wilderness. He had been there once before when he was on the run from King Saul, who ironically was chasing after him to take his life. Like, what is it with this guy that everybody wants to hunt him down and kill him, right? Saul eventually failed, and, and the Lord ultimately ended up granting David the throne of Israel and Saul's place. And, and it's not just in David's life, but these kinds of wilderness moments, they appear with, with a certain regularity over the, the lives, uh, in the lives of a number of figures over the entire uh, story arc of all of Scripture. For example, Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years before the Lord called him to go back to Egypt and deliver the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh. The Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years prior to entering into the promised land that the Lord had placed for them. Elijah had a wilderness experience before passing on his mantle and the double portion to Elisha and being caught up in a chariot of fire to go to heaven. Job had a wilderness experience where he lost everything that he owned, including his family, only to later have it fully restored by God up to twice of what he originally lost. John the Baptist was living in the wilderness, eating a diet of locusts and honey. Anybody want to go to lunch after locusts and honey? Yeah. You want to do the John the Baptist fast for our next 21 days? He was living in the wilderness, eating a diet of locusts and honey before he announced the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus himself entered into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan prior to beginning his earthly ministry. And in each one of these instances, the people experiencing a wilderness season came out on the other side better than the place where they had gone in. So with that in mind, let's dig into this wilderness season and see if we can't figure out what it's all about. And so if you're taking notes today, there's, there's three things that I wanna highlight about the wilderness season and specifically about David's place in it that I think that we, if we can apply these things to our life, it'll really help us out for those of us that are walking through or are going to walk through a wilderness season at some point. And the first thing I'd like to highlight is simply the, the definition of our English word, wilderness. The definition. According to dictionary.com, which is a very trusted and viable source, a wilderness is a wild and uncultivated region as of forest or desert. It's uninhabited by people or inhabited only by wild animals. It's a tract of wasteland. There's also a second definition that I'd like to point out, and, and that's this. A wilderness is also a part of a garden that is set apart for plants growing with, and I love this term, part of a garden that is set apart for plants growing with unchecked luxuriance. Unchecked luxuriance, and that simply means abundance. That they can grow however big and however, like in any direction, like it doesn't matter, they can just grow however they want to. 
There's nobody cutting them back or pruning them or limiting them in any way. And what I've come to discover is, is that, that when, when faced with a wilderness experience in front of us, sometimes staying where we are can be much worse than venturing out into the wilderness. And when we do venture out into the wilderness, it serves for us an opportunity for growth and growth in abundance. See, the wilderness, it's, it's uncultivated and it's uninhabited. And so... A wilderness experience will often take us away from people or other distractions in our lives so that we can experience the kind of abundant growth in unchecked luxuriance that God is wanting to bring about in and through our lives. See, sometimes getting caught saves us from something much worse down the road. Sometimes tragedy and pain can be the catalyst that will drive us towards God. Sometimes sickness can bring about a new perspective on our life. Sometimes getting fired from a job will free us up to do the thing that God has planned and designed for us to do in the beginning. Sometimes a breakup becomes the setup for the relationship God wants us to have in our lives. But we got to go to the wilderness to experience that. A place that's uninhabited, it's, it's uncultivated. We're, we're out seemingly by ourselves with nothing else around us because we've got to get to the place where God is all we have in order to realize that God is all we need. And see, in these, in these difficult situations like this, the Lord is able to redeem them in our lives when we will trust him through the trials that we are facing. And when we do, he can use these wilderness experiences in remarkable ways. In other words, in order for God to give individuals or people the choice whether or not to trust him, he must present them first with a moment in crisis. And since he wants us to choose to seek out the help from the invisible, he better remove all the other help first. So he eliminates all the people, he eliminates all the distractions, and he gets us in a place where it's only us and it's only him, and that's the only option that we have. But as long as you and I assume that bad days or bad seasons are always a bad thing, then we will miss out on the blessings that God wants to bring about in our lives because of them. That unchecked, luxuriant growth that the definition talks about and how God is wanting to do something bigger and better and more in our life in the midst of that wilderness season that we're facing. All right, so we've looked at the, the English definition of the word wilderness first. Now let's turn our attention, number two, to the Hebrew word for wilderness, which is midbar. Midbar, and if you're taking notes, it's spelled exactly the way that it sounds, M-I-D-B-A-R. Now, this Hebrew term midbar, it actually has two meanings. The first meaning is wilderness, I'm not trying to trick anybody here this morning. Like, you didn't realize it, but you are a Hebrew scholar. Like, that really is the meaning. When, when the Bible uses the term midbar, it means wilderness when we translate it into English. But, but there is a second definition, a second meaning for this term that's used as well, and it is mouth. 
specifically in reference to the organ that is used to produce speech. Mouth, the organ that is used to produce speech. And as I, as I read this passage and as I look at the root of this word wilderness in Hebrew, in the original context, could it be that maybe, just maybe, God will allow us to experience a wilderness season in order to get our attention? Could it be that he's chosen to send us out into an uncultivated and an uninhabited place to remove all the distractions all the voices, all the noise, all the interference so that we will be able to tune in to the frequency of his voice where he is speaking to us all the more clearly. See, I believe that it's in the wilderness that God typically speaks to us the loudest. But the question is, are we listening? When we find ourselves in the middle of the wilderness, are we so consumed with the situation that is taking place around us that we're drowning out the voice of God and what he's wanting to say to our lives and speak into our hearts? Like, think about it. God gave Israel the 10 commandments when they were in the middle of what? The wilderness, right? Moses was up on the mountain. He comes down. He's got the tablets. He's wanting to communicate God's word to the people. And what did the people do? They grumbled. They complained. They were aggravated. They were frustrated. They told Moses, you know what? We think we'd be better off back in Egypt where we were slaves. God was speaking to them, yet they didn't want what God had for them. They wanted to go back to where they were before they were out in the middle of the wilderness. Did you know that once the, once the Israelites crossed over the Red Sea out of Egypt and were making their way to the promised land, that journey should have then only taken them 11 days. You know how long it took them? 40 years. That means in that time, they could have made that journey over 1,300 times. 1,327 to be exact. But yet because they refused to listen to and be obedient to the voice of the Lord in the midst of the wilderness and what he was wanting to speak into their life. They just went in circles for 40 years to make it to a place that was only 11 days away. That, that'd be like us taking 40 years to get off this island trying to get to Yuli. And so when we're, when we're in the midst of a wilderness and, 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 and that sort of thing is, is happening to us and we, we find ourselves there, rather than, rather than getting so caught up in our situation, what if we begin to tune in to the voice of God and what he's trying to speak? And so there's, there's three questions that I think we need to ask ourselves whenever we find ourselves in, in one of these kinds of places out in the middle of the wilderness. There's, there's three questions that we can ask and ask God and kind of lean into dis, to discover what it is that he's trying to communicate to us. And the first one is simply this, God, what do you want me to know? God, what do you want me to know? Like, what is it that you're trying to teach me? Because I realize that in order for me to get out of this situation, I've got to first learn what I need to learn here so that I can go to the next level. 
That's why the Israelites wandered around for 40 years because they hadn't learned what God was trying to teach them. So he couldn't take them to the promised land until they had learned what they needed to learn. It's like, it's like before, we, before we go to first grade, in kindergarten, we got to learn our shapes and our colors and our numbers and our letters. And, you know, there's some prerequisites in order for us to move on and then so on and so forth in order for us to advance. There, there's some things in our life that we need to first learn before we can move on to the next thing that God has for us. So God, in the midst of this wilderness, what is it that I need to know? What do you want me to know? The second question is, God, where do you want me to go? God, where do you want me to go? Obviously, if, if, if God is moving you into the wilderness, he's telling you that the place that you were in isn't where you needed to be any longer. The, vo- uh, the, the messengers came to David and said, look, you can't stay here. You've got to move on or you're going to die. And so God drove him into the wilderness. Sometimes God drives us into the wilderness because there's something there that he's wanting to do in our lives. There's a place or a person that he's wanting to lead us to that, that we couldn't have gotten to had we stayed right where we were. So God's going to push us out into the wilderness so that then we can get going to where he wants us to head. So God, what do you want me to know? Where do you want me to go? And number three, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want me to do? God, is, 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 there, is there something in my, am, am I experiencing this wilderness experience because there's, there's something in my life that, that I haven't been doing that I need to start doing or that I have been doing that I need to stop doing? Is that what's taking place here? Like, is there, like, along with what I'm learning and, and where I'm headed, what am I supposed to do? Like, what's my purpose when I get there? God, what do you want me to know? Where do you want me to go? And what do you want me to do? See, the truth is, is that God hasn't allowed us to experience a wilderness season to punish us. He's allowing us to experience a wilderness season to prepare us and to position us for the thing that he has in store next. So he's saying, I'm, I'm getting you here to eliminate all the distractions, all the noise and everything, so that you can focus in on what I'm trying to communicate, the things that I'm trying to teach you, the places I'm trying to send you, the things that I'm wanting you to do with your life. And so he gets us out in the wilderness so that we can be prepared and positioned to springboard into the next season that he has for our lives. And so we, we look at the, the English definition of the word wilderness. We looked at the Hebrew term for wilderness and what that means. And then now let's look at David's wilderness experience and specifically the place where it took him. It was a place called Mahanaim. Everyone say that with me. On the count of three, one, two, three, Mahanaim. That's where, um, that's where Frodo and Samwise Gamgee hid one time from the eye of Sauron. And all of the closet nerds are the ones laughing right now. The ones earlier that didn't raise their hand for the comic book thing, we've identified you all now. You're like, I get it. <laughs> Some of you have no clue. Mahanaim. We get that from uh, 2 Samuel 17, verses 27 through 29. A little bit further down in our passage. So skip down there with me. It says this, when David arrived at Mahanaim, he was warmly greeted by Shobi, son of Nahash, who came from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and by Machir, son of Amiel from Lodabar, and by Barzillai of Gilead from Rogalim. There's gonna be a pop quiz after service on these names. <laughs> so if you're taking good notes. 
But here's the important part. It says, they brought sleeping mats and cooking pots and serving bowls and wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans, lentils, honey, butter, sheep, goats, and cheese for David and those who were with him. For they said, you must all be very hungry and tired and thirsty after your long march through the wilderness. Now this place, Mahanaim, that David had come to after his wilderness experience, it's significant because this isn't the first time that we come across Mahanaim in the scriptures. In fact, it points us back to Genesis 32 where there was a man by the name of Jacob who later had his name changed to Israel. He's the father of the nation of Israel. He literally had the the sons that became the tribes. He was traveling with his family and he had set up camp in this particular area. It was there that angels came. The Bible tells us in Genesis 32, angels came and ministered to him, to his family. And Jacob realized that God had gone before him and that he wasn't there alone. And so he named the place Mahanaim, which means in Hebrew, two camps. It means I'm not here by myself. It means I'm here where the Lord has already shown up. The Lord's already there. He's been waiting on me two camps. It's not just my camp, it's also God's. And I find it no coincidence that when David has gone through his wilderness experience, that he finds himself right there in the middle of Mahanaim. And that when he gets to Mahanaim, all those guys with names we can't pronounce, they show up with the very thing that David and his men needed. All the supplies, all of the resources, and that David, what he once was lacking, was now fulfilled. He found himself being in a place of refreshment. See, that day, David realized the same thing that Jacob had all those years before, that he wasn't alone, that the Lord had gone before him to meet with him and provide for him at Mahanaim. Thank you for joining us. We hope you were inspired by the message. For more information, visit www.thechristwalk.com.